0: We do apologise for the poor quality during parts of the following recording. This is due to the original recording being made on paper tape, which has now over the years begun to break down and deteriorate. The recording has been digitally restored, and we hope therefore that you will not find the background noise too distracting. And you will enjoy this important and historic recording by Dr Martin Lloyd-Jones.
1: We come back to a further consideration of this uh, mighty statement which we have here at the end of this epistle to the Ephesians. We do so because, uh, as I have been indicating on the two previous Sunday mornings when we have considered this great statement, uh, failure to understand this teaching undoubtedly accounts for a great deal of failure in the Christian life and a good deal of what we may term spiritual depression. And it is because we are dealing with that general theme of spiritual depression that we are engaged in considering this passage at all. There can be no doubt, and it becomes to me at any rate increasingly evident, that the main cause of the fact that the masses of people are outside the Christian church is the failure of Christian people truly to manifest the Christian life in their daily life and living. And therefore, the most urgent task, if we are concerned, about seeing true revival in the church, is to discover the causes of this failure, this depression, this lack of power, this ability to give the impression that the Christian life is the noblest and the highest and the greatest thing that one can ever know in this world of time. And therefore we are considering these causes of spiritual depression. And here I say is a very common one. And that is why the apostle at the end of this letter, which is one of his great doctrinal epistles in which he has been treating a very profound doctrine, and then has gone on to make stringent and urgent ethical appeals to the members of the church at Ephesus in a final word, feels that he must say this in addition. And here you see we have an illustration, and a very remarkable one. Of what we may call the realism and the honesty of the Christian gospel. It's when it does a thing like this, we see the great difference between the gospel and the cults. The cults and anything that approximates to a cult uh, always gives the impression that you've only got to accept this and all will be well ever after. All your problems are going to be banished and you're going to be perfectly happy and nothing will ever go wrong again. That's the characteristic of the cults. That's not the Christian gospel. The Christian gospel with its own honesty and realism warns us at the very beginning that uh, as we enter into the Christian life we enter into a great spiritual conflict. Now you remember the commission that was given to this very man Paul who writes these words. When he saw the risen Lord on the road to Damascus the Lord commissioned him to be an apostle and a preacher. And this is what he told him to do. He told him that he was going to send him to the people, that's to say the Jews, and to the Gentiles, for this purpose. To open their eyes, to enlighten them, to teach them, and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan, unto God. So it's not surprising that the apostle repeatedly comes back to and adverts uh, to this great question of the spiritual conflict in which we find ourselves. And for a Christian not to realize this is the core disaster at the very beginning. So the apostle tells us all about it, that we wrestle not only against flesh and blood, our difficulties are not only with men and women and with people and with ourselves, Oh, but with these principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness even in the heavenlies, the moment we become Christians, the devil and all his forces deploy into position against us. And their one concern is to bring us down so that the name of Christ may be brought into disrepute. So the Christian life is a fight, it's a conflict, it's a wrestling. And the apostle is intent upon our understanding that, for not to realize that we are involved in such a conflict, obviously, means that we are already defeated. And so, you see, he tells us what is absolutely necessary. He trembles in a sense as he thinks of these Christian people in Ephesus. And he would have them know that there are two things without which they can never stand. And it is the the ability to stand that matters. And before they can stand, you notice how he goes on repeating it. They must know that power and that strength which the Lord himself alone can give them. Finally, my brethren, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, in the energy, the vigor of his potency and power. You're nothing less than that will suffice. But not only that, we need to put on the whole armor of God. It means an armor provided for us by God, not something that you and I do, not relying upon ourselves or our willpower or anything else. We must take this armor that God has prepared for us and put it on, and put it on prayerfully, as he tells us at the end. Now, we are concerned particularly at the moment with this armor that God has provided, So we began our consideration of it last Sunday morning. Let me just very briefly remind you of what we arrived at. The great thing is, he says, to put on the whole armor, every bit of it, every portion of it. You can't afford to neglect one part of this armor because the enemy is so subtle. Well, very well, what do we need? Well, he starts with what you may describe the integument of the Christian soldier. And there we saw saw that there were three pieces You must start with your girdle, having your lines, he says, girt about with truth, by which he means the whole of this biblical revelation. Without standing on truth and in truth, we cannot hope to meet and to resist the onslaughts of the enemy. I say it means knowing something about this entire revelation. The more one is familiar with this word and its message, the more one will be able to triumph and to prevail. That's the fundamental thing. Without that we stand no chance at all. So the first thing the Christian's got to do is to familiarize himself with the whole of this message. The second thing you remember was the breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith. Not your own goodness, but realizing that you're saved and saved alone by Christ and his perfect righteousness, his obedience to God's law, his death, bearing the punishment of our guilt and our sin, we put that on and that's the only protection. The devil can't penetrate that. And then we saw thirdly and lastly, last Sunday morning, that we must put on as sandals Upon our feet, what he calls the preparation of the gospel of peace. Which means preparedness, readiness, alertness, swiftness. You're fighting a foe that is not only powerful, but subtle and is quick in his movements and in his actions. And you must be ready to be equally quick and alert, says the apostle. Put on. Therefore, as your sandals, the preparation of the gospel of peace. In other words, unless we are at peace with God and with ourselves, unless we have assurance of salvation, we shall make very poor soldiers against the enemy. He'll come and he'll suggest these subtle questions and doubts. We must be at peace within so that we are entirely able to face him outside. Well now then, that is the point at which we have arrived. And I have to say all that because it's no use proceeding with what we are going to consider this morning unless we are clear about those things those are the absolute fundamentals those are the things on which we stand my friends you can't stand on your own decision you can't stand on your own willpower you can't stand on an experience you must have truth the truth of god himself and you must know it and you must understand the grounds of your standing with god the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ and you must have this peace this assurance that that truth alone can give very well having that and being clear about that we now proceed because that isn't all you notice in the list of the things provided for us by God yet by way of armor there is a second group and the second group consists of two items two elements He says here in verse 16, Above all, taking the shield of faith, uh, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation. Those are the next two. Now, this is, uh, to me, extremely interesting. To notice the difference between the two groups. What we have here is uh, what you can describe as further protection. You've got that fundamental integument, without which I say you can do nothing, but in addition to that, you are given this further protection. Now, the right use of this further protection will save us a great deal of trouble. And that is the point I want to emphasize particularly this morning. If only we made use as we should of this additional protection that is provided for us, well, there would be less need to rely upon the breastplate and the girdle and upon the sandals. Now, this is something which is very wonderful, that the Christian is provided with this additional protection. In other words, it seems to me that the teaching can be put in this form. That I should not be constantly having to go back to the whole question of my justification and my original standing. That the question of my relationship to God and my assurance of salvation should not be something that I have to be reconsidering day by day. If I only use the shield and the helmet correctly, I'm protected against all that. It never comes as near as that. You see, you start with this fundamental integument, then you have something outside that, as it were, and finally we'll go on to consider the sword. So you travel from within outwards. And it is uh, according to the proficiency with which we are able to use the shield and the helmet and the sword. It is to that extent, I say, that we are not constantly having to rely upon that which is more basic and fundamental. You can never leave it off because if you fail with your shield, well then, the breastplate is absolutely essential. But obviously, if you use your shield correctly, the breastplate doesn't come into action. Now, I haven't time to work that out as I should, but I do press it upon your consideration. There are so many Christian people, there's no question about their being Christian who nevertheless seem to be constantly having to go back all again over their original standing. Now there I say the trouble is invariably the failure to use this shield and the helmet correctly. Therefore let us go on to consider what the apostle has got to say about them. Now what does he mean by this shield of faith? It's obviously something which is of the greatest importance. Let me be clear about one mechanical point. He says here in verse 16, Above all, taking the shield of faith. Now, that above all does not mean that it's the most important thing of all. That's a very false interpretation of it. That would give the impression that the shield is the most important element of all. It isn't. It is actually not as important fundamentally as the girdle of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. They are the fundamental thing. Well, what does he mean by above all? He means in addition to all. If you like, in front of all. Not first in importance, but he means overall, in addition to all, covering all this. Take the shield of faith. One other point, I think, which is of importance uh, to understand truly what he means at this point is that the shields that they used in those days were large ones. They were not just uh, circular shields, uh, such as we tend to think of instinctively. They were oblong shields, which are generally covered from the mouth right down to the ground. They were large, oblong shaped. And therefore the picture is of a man holding this shield. He looks over it, but it's covering from there down as well. Well now then, what is the point and the purpose of having such a shield? Well, the apostle answers that question very perfectly. Take the shield of faith, he says, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, or of the wicked one. You see the picture? It seems that in ancient warfare they used to use these so-called fiery darts. Think of a dart with a chemical material placed at the point. And what they did was this. They used to hurl these darts, and the moment the dart struck something, it burst into flame. It was a dart with a kind of explosive material there at the very point of contact. And the moment it struck, it burst us into a flame, and it might be the cause of one's death. These fiery darts, the enemy is hurling them, throwing at us from all directions, says the Apostle. Now what does he mean by this in a spiritual sense? Well, surely we are not ignorant of what this means. He is referring here to the way in which the enemy of our souls literally does hurl and throw these darts at us, thoughts, desires, suggestions, sights, persons, These various things that are very definitely, I say, hurled at us and thrown at us. And when they do strike us, they burst into this kind of flame. Anything that inflames you, anything that lights a match, as it were, in this inflammable matter that is still in us, in our bodies, in our members, passions, lusts, desires, all these things. Things come, as it were, uh, without our thinking about them at all and without our being interested in them. You may be reading your Bible, you may be on your knees in prayer, you may be reading a good book, you may be meditating about God and about Christ, and suddenly it strikes you, and you're inflamed without your realizing it. That's a fiery dart which has been thrown at you by the evil one. And I say not to be aware of this is the cause of much confusion. Haven't you found this thing happening to you, the first thing when you wake up in the morning sometimes? Before you're even quite awake. Before you've started thinking volitionally. A thought comes to you, strikes you. At once there's a temptation, and you've done nothing at all. Ah, the answer is it's come from the enemy, who is always on the alert, always has his relays of troops. is always there, I say, concerned to bring us down, and he hurls these things, a thought, A desire, a passion, an imagination. I haven't time to stay with this in detail, but that is the kind of thing to which the apostle is referring. And doubts and queries and questionings about all these vital matters. Thus I say he tries to bring the Christian down and to spoil his testimony and to ruin his Christian life. Well now then, the apostle says that the way to deal with all that is to take this shield of faith and to be ever there ready with it so that when these things come you just hold up the faith and it bursts against the shield and it doesn't touch you, it doesn't trouble. You. The whole thing is finished there and then. We had some conception of this during the war in the period of the flying bombs, hadn't we? You remember the way in which they dealt with them? They put up those barrage balloons between us and the south coast. And the result was that these things came and they struck the balloon and burst into flame and exploded, and that was the end. And so London was spared from much of the damage. It's that kind of thing. You just hold up the shield, and then your breastplate doesn't come into action. The girdle of truth doesn't come into action. They've all just burst against the shield, and they've finished, and there's no more to be said about it. Well, now the apostle says, this is essential, therefore you just know how to handle your shield. But what does this mean, says someone in actual practice? Well, it seems to me that the most essential thing is this. It is the shield of faith, you notice. What does he mean by that? Well, I, mean, I think he means this. He means the capacity to apply the particular truth that is necessary and relevant in any given situation. That's what he means. The shield of faith. As these things come, you hold up your faith. It means, I say, that you will have this ability to take the truth that you already know and to apply it and to hold it up so that the dart strikes against it and it doesn't touch you. And thank God there is a particular truth for every particular suggestion and innuendo of the devil. Whatever he may do, whatever he may say, whatever he may suggest, there is always something here which is a complete answer. And our faith is our ability to apply that. Let me divide it up a little. First and foremost, I think it means that we have faith in God and all his promises. Now, I read to you that great 11th chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews at the beginning, in order that I might remind you of this in the most perfect way conceivable. That was the whole secret of the so-called heroes of faith. They knew how to use this shield. Every one of them was a man who had to contend with terrible temptations and trials. Think of them. Think for a moment of a man like Noah. was called by God to stand against everybody as it were. One man out of all. And they ridiculed him and they laughed at him. They thought everything was all right. Noah knew that things were not all right. God had given him this revelation of truth and he was concerned and he saw the judgment that was coming and he begins to build an ark and he goes on at it for 120 years. Can't you picture that man? Can't you imagine the discouragement? How often he must have said to himself, am I alone right? Is everybody else wrong? Am I a fool? And everything suggested to him that he was. Those were the fiery darts of the evil one. But Noah went on. Why? He had faith in God and in God's word. He knew what was right, irrespective of the fact that the crowd was doing something different. That's faith, and that's the shield of faith. He kept going by just holding on to God's promise and the certainty of the promise. And it was exactly the same with Abraham. Think of that incident in particular that the author there brings up in that 11th of Hebrews. When Abram was told to take his son Isaac and to offer him as a sacrifice. What a terrible thing it must have been for him. Can you imagine his feelings? Can you imagine the way he was assailed by the devil with doubts and misgivings? It came to him like this undoubtedly. Well, why? This must be wrong. God gave you a promise that it was in Isaac that your seed was going to be blessed, and now you think that God is asking you to sacrifice Isaac. It can't be true. It's impossible. And yet Abram knew that it was true, and on he went and he was prepared to do it. On what? Well, knowing that God, who had given the promise is all-powerful and could even raise Isaac from the dead if necessary, so he went on. In spite of being assailed by these doubts and fears, which the devil was hurling at him from all directions, he held up the shield of faith. It's exactly the same with every one of them. Read again that great chapter. And you'll find this principle uh, quite perfectly. Indeed, these all, men, all these men lived according to this principle. They said, the Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what men shall do unto me. Why did they say that? Well, for this reason. God had said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And however black the outlet might have been, however terrible the enemy with his pressure and all his suggestions, they relied upon the promise of God, and nothing could shake them, and nothing could move them. The shield of faith. My friends, we must learn how to use this. There will be times, I say, when you'll have nothing but the bare word of God, and you must stand on it, hold up your shield, and it'll cause the fiery dart of the devil to be quenched without touching him. But it isn't only that. Another very important aspect of faith seems to me to be this. That we should know the reality of the spiritual realm and the unseen, and be able, therefore, to put the present and the seen into that context and into its right and true perspective. If you want a perfect exposition of all that, you've simply got to read the fourth chapter of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians, and there you will find it to perfection. If ever a man was tried, it was this apostle Paul. Everything seemed to be going against him. Listen to some of the things he says. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. That was his condition. If you think of Paul as a man always riding on the crest of the wave of success and popularity, you're making a terrible mistake. He was a man who was tried and tested to the very depths, forsaken of all at times, fighting this lonely battle. And here were these things coming from all directions. But he goes on. What enabled him to go on, he tells us in the last two verses of that chapter. This was the shield of faith which kept him going and caused all the fiery darts of the devil to be quenched. Our light affliction, he says which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That's his secret. Nothing can daunt a man like that. Nothing can get him down. Yes, they're being hurled in all directions, these fiery darts, but he holds up the shield of faith. And it means just that, I say. First of all, the ability to be so certain of the spiritual and the eternal that you can put the present and the scene, with all its difficulties and its baffling problems into the right setting and into the right context. Well, let me interpret that in this way. It is by faith, you see, that one is enabled to see through the present. The world is there with its dazzling prizes and its gifts and its temptations and its suggestions. And these things are being hurled at us. Why be a fool and be a Christian? Why not have a good time and enjoy life? How marvelous life is. Look at it as depicted in the newspapers with its pomp and its glory and its greatness. That's life. And these hur- these darts are hurled at the innocent Christian. There's only one answer to that sort of thing. If the Christian has true faith, he sees through all that. He isn't enticed and attracted by all that. The pomp and the show. How empty, how vain, how transient and evanescent. Here today and gone tomorrow, the things that are seen are temporal. What is there in it? Read the biographies of great men. Look at their end. All that the world has to offer its potential, there's nothing in it, and it's only faith that enables the man to see through it. So that as the darts are hurled at you, hold up the shield of faith, and you won't be touched. They won't affect you. They'll all be quenched as they dash against the shield of your faith. Faith, you see, is the victory that overcometh the world, and it does so by enabling you to see through it. You just see it as it really is, and you can smile at it all. It won't affect you. But without that shield, you'll be constantly in trouble. Yes, but you see, the faith not only enables you to see through the present, it does something much more wonderful. It gives you a glimpse into the future and into the eternal Our light affliction, says Paul, about all his trials and troubles, which is but for a moment. We are only here a few years, says the apostle, and let hell be let loose against me, and let the wicked one hurl all his darts. It's not going on forever and forever, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. He's seen that. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's it. He's seen them. And you know a man who's once had a glimpse of the eternal glory is never going to be attracted by the present and by this world. He's seen into the unseen. He's seen something of God and heaven and glory. And having seen that, I say he wants it and he wants nothing else. Go back again to your 11th of Hebrews. Wasn't that the secret of a man like Moses? Well, we are told that it was. He could have uh, had a great position as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have become the chief man in the court, the greatest man in the land. But he didn't. He became an outcast and a mere shepherd for 40 years. Why? Why? Well, because he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He'd seen through it. He'd seen the end of all earthly and worldly glory. The pleasures of sin, how marvelous they are. Yes, but they don't last, they only last for a season. And then they've gone, and they leave you an exhausted wreck, physically, mentally, spiritually, upon your deathbed. I don't want that sort of thing, says Moses. He preferred, therefore, chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to suffer, than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Why? Well, again we are told why. He had his eye upon the recompense of the reward. He couldn't see it tangibly, visibly. He saw it by faith. Moses banked his whole position upon his faith. Well, that is the shield of faith. So that as these enticements and uh, suggestions come and these subtle temptations to take you away from God and Christ and to go to the world and have what the world can give you, you just hold up your shield of faith. You say, no, no, I see through that, but I've seen something else. And you go on as seeing him who is invisible. Oh, this great chapter, this 11th of Hebrews, sums it all up for us in one phrase, doesn't it? It tells us that these great men had seen those things afar off, and were persuaded of them. And because they were persuaded of them, they embraced them. They had nothing tangible to show. Abram was called out of a country to go to a land. He didn't know where. He didn't know where he was going. He knew nothing at all except that God had called him. It was absolute faith. He stood on faith. And though the enemy attacked, he held up his shield. He believed God. A Christian is a man who is traveling to a city that he has never seen. But he knows that it is a city which hath foundations,
0: whose builder
1: and maker is
0: God. And because
1: of that, he leaves all else. He'll stand on his faith. He'll risk all upon it. The shield of faith. My dear friends, we must know I say how to use this. And if we do, well, let the devil hurl his fiery darts at us as much as he likes. He'll never touch us. They'll all burst into flame and fall like damp squibs to the ground. Another way in which we employ the shield of faith is this, that we must know ourselves to be God's people. And that again is a question of faith. If you don't know yourself to be one of God's people and are not certain about it, you won't be able to hold up the shield of faith at that point. Let me give you one hurried illustration as the time is passing to show what I mean to perfection by this. There's a great story about Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah. That men had been given a great task to do by God, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And there were enemies attacking, you see, day and night. And Nehemiah knew that they must be vigilant and always on guard. They had a trowel in one hand and a sword in another. And they had their relays and they were to be there, fighting and building at the same time. And a friend came to Nehemiah and said to him, Nehemiah, you know, he said, you can't go on like this, you'll kill yourself. And he said, if you were killed, it would be a terrible disaster. Everything would collapse. You're absolutely essential. Look here, he said, I'll tell you what we must do. Come with me into that shrine in the temple. We'll lock ourselves up there and barricade ourselves. Then we'll be able to sleep there in safety. There'll be no need to do this double action, as it were. Come with me, let's hide ourselves and barricade ourselves and be absolutely safe from the enemy. And Nehemiah replied, saying one of the greatest things that a mortal human being has ever said. He just looked at the men and said, Should such a man as I flee? What are you talking about, said Nehemiah? You know that I'm God's servant. I'm a man of God. I'm relying upon the living God. Should a man like that flee for his life? Unthinkable. You see, the dart had been hurled. He held up the shield of faith. He knew who he was and what he was. And you and I must know it. And as these attacks come, we say, unthinkable for me. I'm a man of God. I know that. That's my faith. And then lastly, of course, and more important than everything else, we must know the Lord Jesus Christ and his power. And that's something we know by faith. And as we know it and trust to it, we shall never be afraid you know, my friends, the name of the Lord is enough at times. A man puts that again in the Old Testament very perfectly. He says this. He says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. He's being attacked and he doesn't know what to do. He's almost overcome. He runs into the name of the Lord and it's like a strong tower. And it saves him completely. They overcame him, says the book of Revelations. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. My friends, there are times when the Christian is so hard pressed. uh, When he seems to be too feeble in a sense to hold up his shield and can do nothing. What does he do? He just looks to the Lord and relies upon his might and his power. He never does so in vain. That's his faith. He will find that as he looks to him he is given power to hold up his arm. And the shield is again raised. Very well, work it out for yourselves. That is the shield of faith. It means the understanding of the truth, the ability to apply it, to take hold of it, and to show its relevance to given position. Let me say just a hurried word about the helmet of salvation. What does this mean? Well, you see, it is a part of this additional protection. As I say, the shield comes up to about here. But obviously a man doesn't hold the shield before his eyes, otherwise he wouldn't know what to do. He wouldn't be able to see what the enemy was doing. The shield doesn't protect from there up, so he's given this helmet of salvation. And how vital and how important is this? But people are often troubled by the description. They say, why the helmet of salvation? They say, I thought we dealt with salvation when we were considering the breastplate of righteousness. Isn't that our salvation? Why does he call the helmet, the helmet of salvation? Well, he's using the term salvation here in a sense that it's often used in the scripture. It means our final salvation, our ultimate redemption. Take, for instance, how he puts it in writing to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1.30, Uh, "...who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption." Now, redemption there doesn't mean forgiveness of sins and righteousness. He's already mentioned it. It means our final, complete deliverance from sin in every shape and form. Even the body has been glorified and we stand perfect in the presence of God. Salvation. Ultimate salvation. Salvation. Put on, he says, the helmet of salvation. What's that? Well, this is none other than the Christian's hope. The Christian's blessed hope of the certainty of the final triumph and the final victory. And you see at once how unnecessary this is. Given everything else, you see, at times... Oh, one is so hard-pressed that one becomes tired and weary. We are, after all, in the flesh, my friends, and we get tired and weary physically and mentally, and the devil always takes advantage of it all. And there are times, I say, when the Christian is so hard-pressed that though he is standing and though he's doing all that I have been saying, he begins to say, oh, how can it go on? Will not the enemy ultimately triumph? Can I hold out to the end? The helmet of salvation is the answer. And what it says is, yes, you will. You're in the hands of God. Your ultimate salvation is absolutely certain and sure. There is no such thing as falling from grace. If you're a Christian, you'll always be a Christian. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength, will certainly keep going. it will continue it. More happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. My friends, we belong to one to whom all power has been given in heaven and in earth. Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run. There's no question about it. It is absolutely certain. The victory is assured. The final salvation is there. I'm going to it. I put on the helmet of salvation. Let everything go against me. Let the enemy appear to be triumphant all along the line. The purposes of God are certain and sure and nothing can frustrate. them. That's what he means by the helmet of salvation. The devil is mighty and powerful and strong. Never underestimate him. And he's going to gather all his forces for a final Armageddon. He's going to do his utmost. There will be a final onslaught. Have no fear. Have no uncertainty whatsoever. The Lord Jesus Christ defeated him while he was here on earth. He exposed him and routed him upon the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ is at this moment seated at the right hand of the power of God, waiting until all his enemies shall be made his footstool. How often do you use the helmet of salvation? How often do you think of things like that? That's what you've got to do, says Paul. You'll be so hard pressed at times when you'll have nothing to hold you, as it were, except that certain absolute knowledge that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He'll complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Victory is certain and assured. Not one of us will be lost who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are in his hands, put on the helmet of salvation. Be certain about the blessed hope that no one and nothing can ever rob you of. It is in God's keeping. It is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you by God. For all who have faith in him. That then is the helmet of salvation. Just to complete this, just a final word about the last piece, the sword of the spirit, which I put into a category on its own, because I think it should be on its own. This is something still additional. There is an activity about this which is not to be found in the shield nor in the helmet. What's it for? Well, you notice how he defines it. It is, he says, the sword of the spirit... Which doesn't mean that the spirit is the sword, because he tells us that the sword is actually the word of God. It is the sword provided by the spirit. It is the word of God. Very well, here it is, you see. What's it mean? Well, I think it means this. And at this point I disagree with many of the learned commentators. They say that this is the only offensive weapon in the armor. I'm not at all sure that it's meant to be offensive at all. I think this is the kind of ultimate defensive weapon. This is how I understand it. There are times when the devil so masses his forces against you. Well, let's admit it, you just fail to use your shield. And with his fiery darts he gets in and he gets at you and your shield is down. And there you're standing without your shield. The devil himself has come right up against you. It's a kind of in-fighting. Until this point, he's been throwing his darts from a distance. But now he's advanced, and you're there face to face with him, without your shield. He's come right in against you, and he's attacking you directly and immediately. At this point, there's nothing to do but to take up your sword and begin to use it. And it's the word of God. I needn't keep you, because there is a perfect illustration of this. That is what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing in his temptations in the wilderness. It was a hand-to-hand combat. It wasn't the devil attacking him from the distance, hurling things at him. No, no, it was a direct hand-to-hand conflict. The devil was there right in front of him, and he was slashing at him. And our Lord, do you remember, simply used the sword of the Spirit? If thou be the Son of God, back came the answer, it is written. That's the use of the sword. Read the accounts of the temptations of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll find that he did nothing but quote Scripture. He used the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You see how I work it out? It's like this. Faith doesn't just mean quoting Scriptures. Faith means the application of truth of Scripture. But there are times when it's so desperate you can't even do that. You simply stand and say, the Word of God says... The Bible has taught me. This is what I believe. And you hurl the word at him. And every time you'll defeat him. At that point you're invincible. And the enemy cannot stand against the use of the sword of the spirit. Which is the word of God. Now then, as I close, let me put it in this way. You see, we started with truth. Which is general revelation. The general truth. We came to the sword, we came to the shield, which is the application of that in terms of doctrine, the shield of faith. Finally, we come to the sword, which is the bare recital of the word. Oh, how perfect the provision! Whatever happens to us, we are always complete. Let the enemy break through our outer defenses, we still have got this integument upon us. Let him come in such a way that he even seems to threaten that. Still we have the sword, and you have but to use this word of God. And your enemy will not only be repulsed, he may receive wounds, and he'll retire from the conflict for a season, even as he did with the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Unfortunately, the last few moments of this message are missing from the original master tape. And we must also apologise for the poor quality during the last few moments. This was due to a deterioration in the original master tape, which was recorded on paper. It hasn't unfortunately survived the years. But however, we hope that it didn't spoil your enjoyment of this sermon by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Thank you for listening. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.